everybody. Uh, welcome back to more of a comment than a question. I am your host, Paul Connor. Um, I am very excited about this week's episode. I have um, very, very special guest here, just a wonderful, intelligent, uh, illuminating young academic. Um, she's been on the podcast before, but I'm so glad to have her back uh, because she's just just such a refreshing, uh, intelligent, insightful voice. <laughs> and I'm just, I'm just really glad to have you back on the pod. Rachel Ernstoff, thank you so much for joining me again on the podcast. It's, it's, a, it's an honor to have you back. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, thanks for having me. I don't really know how to respond to such a effusive introduction. Um, glad to be back. Uh, it's so it's just so great to have you. Um, oh, and we also have uh, Manny as well. So Manny, <laughs> yeah, shut up. Too. Um. <laughs> no, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Okay, so you've both been on the podcast before. Manny by Manny, I mean Manuel Galvan. Uh, in his own right, a, a wonderful uh, young academic grad student. You're both at uh, University of North Carolina. You both do uh, great work in social psychology. You've both been on the pod. But I just wanted to, well, okay, so the idea for this pod really, like, I, I wasn't sure. I've just been getting pissed off about a lot, a lot of stuff on Twitter. And I, and I, like, don't have the podcast. Well, I do have the podcast, but in the old days, I would just sort of email Smriti and say, hey, this thing's really pissing me off and it's stupid. Let's do a podcast about it. I don't have that anymore. So I thought, ah, what can I do? And I thought, ah, maybe I'll just invite Rachel and Manny on and we can just, I can just sort of vent about stuff to them and we can, we can sort of have a debate. And Rachel can agree with me and Manny can... <laughs> provide the balance <laughs> and push back but you know in useful ways uh in yep. sort of data-driven Always. useful ways um yeah and we'll do our best to break up your monologues for the listeners <laughs> yeah 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 <laughs> they'll appreciate it all right so we're each uh the plan is that we each are going to choose a topic um and just discuss it um and we've each sort of chosen chosen something we want to talk about um and mine and i'm i'm gonna go first um because you know it's my podcast so <laughs> mine mine is this uh story that i've become really interested in over the last week um about this kid called Kiran Bhattacharya, who has been uh, expelled from um, University of Virginia. He was a medical student, and in 2018, in his second year of medical school, he was expelled uh, ostensibly for violating the school's uh, professionalism code. So he was accused of acting uh, in a sort of aggressive, hostile manner, and it all stemmed from... Um, this uh, seminar that the university had put together about microaggressions. So I'm going to um, sort of just try to tell the story and I'm going to intersperse some audio clips with it. Um, just to, I mean, we, and like, I want to make the disclaimer that we may not know the, the full story. Um, I'm piecing this together from some recordings that have been shared online and some court documents. So uh, Kieran is now suing uh, the University of Virginia um, for violating his um, First Amendment free speech rights. Uh, and a judge recently, and this is kind of why it sort of came to my attention, a judge recently ruled that that court case can go ahead. So he can, he does have at least a case to press against the University of Virginia 
for violating his First Amendment rights. The court also threw out three other claims that he was making against the school, uh, but did rule that it seemed like he might have a case at least in terms of... So relying on court documents and recordings uh, and a couple of uh, articles that people have written about it and things that they've, they've dug up. Okay, so... Um, it started in, let me see if I can uh, bring up the timeline here. So it started in, I believe it was October in 2018. Uh, so Kieran Bhattacharya, he's a medical student at the University of Virginia. He attends a panel discussion on microaggressions. Um, you know, and they, they talk about microaggressions. I have to admit, I haven't actually listened to the content of the actual discussion about microaggressions prior to Bhattacharya answering, answering a question. And it's not totally relevant. I assume it was just pretty stock standard diversity training stuff, talking about microaggressions being these sort of um, uh, subtle, uh, plausibly deniable acts of uh, like r- racism or uh, sexism or just sort of offensive, offensive behavior. Um, and Kieran asked a question, and he was the first person in the seminar to ask a question. Um, and I'm going to play you the clip. We have the audio clip of his question. So I'm just going to start that now. Uh, hello. Thank you for your uh, presentation. Um, I had a few questions just to clarify um, your definition of microaggressions. Is it a requirement to be a victim of microaggression that you are a member of a marginalized group? Very good question. And no. And no. But in, in the definition, it just said you had to be a member of the marginalized group. In the definition you just provided in the last slide, so that's contradictory. Um, what I have there is kind of the generalized um, definition. In fact, I extended beyond that. Um, I, as you see, I um, extended to any marginalized group, and sometimes it's not a marginalized group. Um, there are examples that you would think maybe not fit, such as body size, um, height, weight, and if that is how you'd like to see me expand it, yes, indeed, that's how I do. Yeah, uh, follow-up question. Uh, exactly how do you fi- define marginalized and who is a marginalized group? Where does that go? I mean, it seems extremely nonspecific. And um, that's intentional. That's intentional to make it more nonspecific because, again, if we can be just kind of limited to say, well, it's only this and it's only that, and everything else that you say or do um, does not fit that category, then in fact, we make that too limiting and um, make it such that only those bad people think about things that way, but the rest of us who are good and um, caring couldn't possibly say or do those kinds of things. Yeah, and a third component about your definition of microaggression and how you said, oh, hi, it's distinguished from rude statements, you clarified that is because the person who is receiving the microaggressions somehow knows the intention of the person who made it, somehow knows whether or not that person is educated, whether that person is actually intentionally harming them, or whether or not they are unintentionally harming them. One. Two, the distinguishing factor that we also should make between what a rude statement is and what, you're, what you are now defining as a microaggression is that a microaggression is entirely dependent on how the person who's receiving it is reacting. It could be dependent on their previous relationship. It's not exactly what the person is saying. So the evidence that you provided, and you said you studied this for years, which is one anecdotal case. I mean, do you have, have you studied anything else about microaggressions that you know in the last few years? Okay, let's let's take it back a little bit. Um, that's why I wanted to give you the definition of, of my example of the Dutch. I had not intended to say anything that 
than to make a comment with a friend. I was not going to say anything that I thought was negative. But in fact, I had offended. I didn't know I had offended. I wouldn't have known I had offended until that person let me know that that was hurtful. Now, once someone tells you that they um, have been hurt or harmed by an expression, I think it's on us to figure out how not to be hurt or harmful to people in the future. Yeah, but isn't it really out of my control what hurts somebody? I can't control what offends. I can punch the air, and if that makes somebody mad, that's not really my problem or my fault. If I punch someone in the face and it directly hurts them, I have incited at them, that's completely different. So, again, what is the basis for what you're going to tell someone that they've committed a microaggression? You hear a story from someone, but how do you know that their interpretation is not subject to bias, that they don't have a previous, they don't prejudice towards the person that they're saying made it? I mean, where are you getting this basis from? How are you studying this, collecting evidence on this, and making presentations on it? Okay, I'll um, take that, and then I think we should make sure to open up the floor to lots of people for questions. Of course, but, yeah. I'll just have to so I um, am from West Virginia, and um, my on my father's side um, was sort of transplanted to West Virginia, but my mother's side has been from West Virginia since the 1700s. And growing up, I was privileged enough to be able to go out of state to attend summer camps, and a rejoining refrain I heard all the time was, oh, you don't sound like you're from West Virginia. Or immediately, you know, lots of harmless jokes like, oh, but you're wearing shoes. Oh, but you're here at this math camp. Oh, but you're a girl. Aren't, why are you bothering to get up? And, and these were all, you could argue, said in good fun and by people who don't know what they're saying. And, you know, I grew up innocent to that and never pushed back on it. But I'll tell you, when I got to uh, residency and I saw how people started, you know, thinking less of me because I was from a rural state, I began to understand the impact of these microaggressions. It doesn't matter. There's, you have to learn to uncouple the intent of what you're saying and the impact it has on the audience. And you have to have a responsibility of the impact of your actions. And if you, um, make a statement that someone considers insensitive, the first thing you can say is, oh my gosh, that was not my intent. But don't get frustrated with that person for bringing it to your attention. I have to re respond to that because um, I never talked about getting frustrated at a person for making a statement. I never condone any statements that you are making like that. But what I'm saying is that what you're providing is anecdotal evidence. That's what you provided, that's what she provided. No, I think she's uh, provided a lot of citations in the literature. And I was just, I'm sorry, I was just reading your body language. Would you like to ask a question? Okay, so that was the extent of um, Bhattacharya's interaction at the microaggression seminar. Uh, the same day, assistant professor of urology, Nora Kern, uh, who helped organize the panel and attended it, filed a professionalism concern card uh, against Bhattacharya. On the, um, so a professionalism concern card, I guess, is a, um, I guess a system in place at, at UVA where people can um, express concerns or express to some um, the appropriate committee uh, that somebody has violated the school's professionalism code. And, and this is what um, Professor Kern said. 
Uh, for an AMWA session, we held a panel on microaggression. Myself and two other faculty members were invited guests. This student asked a series of questions that were quite antagonistic towards the panel. He pressed on and stated one faculty member was being contradictory. His level of frustration slash anger seemed to escalate until another faculty member diffused the situation by calling on another student for questions. I am shocked that a med student would show so little respect towards faculty members. It worries me how he will do on wards. Okay, so the same day, um, Christine Peterson, Assistant Dean for Medical Education, sent Bhattacharya an email with the subject, the panel today. Um, And Peterson... I'm not sure how, how much of a role this plays in it. Peterson was asking, she she said that they could meet, that she thought that she could add additional context. She was worried that he seemed upset or um, aggravated. He sort of reassured her that he wasn't upset. He was just trying to ask questions. They actually met um, for an hour about a week later. So um, I don't have the date. I think it was about a week later. They met for about an hour um, and apparently, in, in, according to the court documents filed by Bhattacharya and his lawyers, they barely mentioned the uh, comments during the panel discussion. Instead, Peterson attempted to determine Bhattacharya's views on various social and political issues, including sexual assault, affirmative action, and the election of President Trump. Okay. The day after the panel, um, John Densmore, Associate Dean Uh, So this is October 26. John Densmore, Associate Dean for Admissions and Student Affairs uh, and Bhattacharya's assigned academic dean, emailed Bhattacharya and his email read, Hi, Kieran. I just wanted to check in and see how you were doing. Hope the semester is going well. I'd like to meet with you next week if you have some time. So they met the following week as well. Uh, Apparently, Densmore did not inform Bhattacharya about the professionalism concern card, uh, nor did he mention Bhattacharya's questions and comments at the panel discussion. Um, when Bhattacharya mentioned his meeting with Peterson, Densmore informed Bhattacharya that he was aware of the meeting. At no point during the meeting did Densmore convey any concerns related to his meeting with Peterson or Bhattacharya's behavior during the panel. And this is, I'm quoting now, um, the court documents from Bhattacharya's legal team. Okay, so... On, a, on November 14, the Academic Standards and Achievement Committee, uh, I'm going to call them ASAC from now on, they met. So this is the committee that receives these professionalism concern cards and decides what to do about them. So um, Nora Kern was there. She's a voting ASAC member. She attended and voted at the meeting. She was the only voting member at the meeting who witnessed the events at the microaggression panel. Peterson um, also attended the meeting as a guest. Okay, so essentially the uh, committee met and decided they voted unanimously to send Kieran a letter reminding him of the importance in medicine to show respect to all colleagues, other staff and patients and their families. Um, At the time, Bhattacharya remained unaware that Kern had issued a card against him. Okay, so the next day, Dr. Jim Tucker, who is the chair of the academics of ASAC, Uh, He sent a letter to Kieran, and this is what the letter said. Dear Mr. Bhattacharya, the Academic Standards and Achievement Committee has received notice of a concern about your behavior at a recent AMWA panel. It was thought to be unnecessarily antagonistic and disrespectful. Certainly, people may have different opinions on various issues, but they need to express them in appropriate ways. It is always important in medicine to show mutual respect to all colleagues, other staff, and patients and their families. We would suggest that you consider getting counseling in order to work on your skills of being able to express yourself appropriately. Sincerely, Jim B. Tucker. Um, Okay, interesting. That part at the end, 
I don't know if Tucker added that or that's something else. It doesn't mention it in the meeting notes of the ASAC, as far as I know, this uh, recommendation at this point that Kieran get uh, counselling. But that recommendation, and this is a sort of key point, um, it uh, morphed over time into uh, a requirement. So 11 days later, on November 26, John Densmore, he's the Associate Dean for Admissions and Student Affairs, sent Bhattacharya an email stating... Uh, we were notified by the Dean of Students Office that you were heading back to Charlottesville. You will need to be seen by CAPS, so this is Counseling and Psychological Services, before you can return to classes. So he's now saying you will need to be seen by CAPS. Um, so Kieran, at this point, um, doesn't want to go uh, for mandatory counseling. Um, and I think he, I think, um, yeah, it seems like he had been in touch with uh, FIRE, Uh yeah, Foundation for Individual Rights in Education. He's been in touch with them and they have told him and they hold this belief and they've put this on their website that it is illegal to require a student to attend uh, psychological counseling um, in order to attend class um, based on um, protected speech, uh, essentially. So the university, it's interesting in their motion, they are now saying that they were requiring him to um, attend counseling, not because of anything he'd said or in any interactions, but because of unexplained absences from class. Um, so that is, uh, seems to be disputed. We can talk about that. I think it's kind of weird either way to require a student to attend counseling, but we can, we can talk about that later. Anyway, uh, back to the timeline. So now they're saying you must attend um, counseling and he's saying no that's illegal uh, so the next day November 27 uh, so Bhattacharya responded uh, and questioned UVA's me- medical school's legal ability to mandate psychiatric evaluations before allowing him to continue his education on that same day the 27th RJ Canterbury senior associate dean of education at UVA medical school emailed Bhattacharya again telling him he was not permitted to return to class until he had been evaluated by um, student health services so the next day on the afternoon of November 28 uh, at 1 p.m. Bhattacharya receives an email from UVA Medical School Registrar Catherine Yates uh, and it, it is inviting him to an ASAC meeting where they are, they're going to debate his uh, enrollment status. Discuss it, it says the Economic Standards and Achievement Committee will be meeting today to discuss your current enrollment status. You are invited to attend to share your insights with the committee. Um, Bhattacharya responded who exactly will be present? Do you normally give, just give students three hours to prepare for indirectly threatening to kick them from med- medical school? Why is, exactly is my enrollment status up for discussion? Uh, I don't know if he got a response to that. But anyway, so that's all the background to this ASAC hearing. Um, and supposedly, yeah, it's um, he's been invited... Uh, to give uh, quote-unquote insights uh, and they're going to discuss his current enrollment status. As far as I know, this is all he knows going into this meeting. Um, so I have uh, four more recordings uh, about this meeting and I, <laughs> I have to say, like, the meeting, it's quite hard for me to listen to the meeting. Uh, as you'll hear, like, Kieran is, inc- like, incredibly defensive and trying, like, obviously, like, a bit just 
scared, but also kind of defiant. And he's trying to act like a lawyer. Like he's trying to, he does this stupid thing at the start that you'll hear in a minute where he's like, they said, okay, so we sent you this email on the 15th. And he's, he's like, do you have proof that I received this email? And then they waste like five minutes of this meeting where he's like, uh, yeah, just like trying to like nitpick about this point of that. Well, you don't know that I received this email, anyway. So oh, I thought it was about an actual physical letter. The way that they were, he was trying to debate the fact of the matter. I was like, no, it, like it was, it was, it was just just about an email, and he momentarily couldn't find find it. And he's later admitted that he did. Oh, that's good context. He's later admitted that he did have it, but it's also just like it's not a point worth sticking on or debating on at all. So you'll you'll hear this, but another key thing in this um, the opening of this meeting is that so Jim Tucker, who's the um, the head of of ASAC or the chair of ASAC, um, mentions the microaggression panel, uh, and Kieran s- sort of says, "Well, I have a recording of the panel," and when he says that, Tucker sort of backs off and he says, "Well, this meeting it's not so much about what happened at the panel; it's about subsequent interactions." So let's just play that one. <clears throat> Uh, as you know, we sent you a letter last month about some interactions that you'd had, and then we've gotten reports about further interactions that are concerning people, so we wanted to give you the opportunity to uh, express your your side of things. Okay, let's just start off from the bat. You said you sent me a letter last month. Um, do you have evidence that I received the letter? Um no, you didn't respond. I'd be happy to send you another one if you didn't receive it. Could I see the letter right now? Do you have a copy of it on you? No. Did Did you not receive it? I did not receive it and was not aware of it. And um, did you send it by email? Mm-hmm. You sent it by email? I did, yes. Okay, let me just... Do you know what date you sent it on? Uh, no, but I can be happy to uh, get you that information. Did you get it then? Yeah, I'll be happy to communicate with you about it in the future. So just to be clear, you sent me a letter by email. You're not sure if I received it. Who sent the, who sent the letter? Email? You did? And, um... Oh, okay. <laughs> well, what was, what was the letter talking about? Well, that letter is talking about some interactions you had at a forum by the um, uh, form on microaggression. Yeah, we actually have um, the audio right here of that. Um, do, we want, do, we want, do we want to play it? Uh, no, because this is actually more concerned with the interactions that you've had since then. Okay, so just to be clear that um, the interactions on this microaggression talk um, were the precipitating factor for this hearing. No, that that we addressed last month, and again, I'll get you a copy of the letter, um, but what we're concerned about is, is some of the behaviors that you've shown since then. So this is interesting in a number of respects, right? Because you can, you can hear in this opening uh, Bhattacharya's attitude, like a very combative, very defiant, very defensive. Uh, but you can also hear Tucker stating... Um, that the uh, microaggression seminar was not the precipitating factor and was not their main concern with regard to his behavior, right? So 
Now you might be wondering, well, what, what was the main concern with regard to his behavior? And, and at this point, Kieran's wondering the same thing. So he then asks specifically, what behaviors are they concerned about? And Tucker responds and mentions, um, well, your interactions with John Densmore, Dean Densmore. And then Kieran asks, well, what, what about my interaction with Dean Densmore? At which point Tucker again changes the subject. Uh, and it, it's quite it's it's quite weird and interesting this next clip uh you're going to hear this this interaction and just like listen to how tucker responds when asked directly about what was it in his interaction with dean densmore that they're concerned about um so again people are expressing concerns with your interactions which people people um well the um uh, a variety of people, actually. Can you can you name any of them? Uh, well, uh, one is the interactions that you've had with your dean, Dr. Dinsmore. Okay. Oh. As well as uh, other students and and other administrators. Okay. Could you? She started with Dinsmore. Could you describe, in your best detail, um, what interaction I had with Dean Dinsmore? Well, uh, I suspect it would was similar to to what you're showing here which is uh, your your uh, documenting something uh what do you mean just documenting this and making sure that you know i mean i don't know i don't know more than half of you are i don't have anyone that i, I can say really trust like maybe this cop i talked to him for like 10 minutes outside i can really trust um the only thing i really have is just audio evidence um i want it to be you know very clear i mean um, how exactly um, people in this room tried to eject me from this medical school. So um, back back again, can you tell me exactly what I did with Densmore that time? Um, uh, so I understand that, that Dr. Canterbury recommended that you go to CAPS before returning to class. Um, so he's... He did say, okay, I suspect it's similar to how you're acting now. But then he presses him again and says, well, what, what about that interaction? Uh, and as you just heard, like he didn't, Tucker didn't answer at all. He just completely, he just changed the subject. He said, oh, well, I understand you got an email. Now he's talking about somebody different from um, RJ Canterbury telling you that you, or recommending that you um, attend CAPS before returning to class. Now, I think if Kieran was smart, he would have got, just tried to stick on the point a little bit more and said, no, well, you know, the first, the first thing you mentioned was my interaction with Dean Densmore. I've asked you twice what was it about my interaction with Dean Densmore that's led us here? But he gets now distracted by this um, Canterbury thing. And then he, he um, seizes on this thing, this word recommended. And he's saying, well, you're saying um, uh, Dr. Canterbury recommended I attend CAPS before returning to class. But in these emails, he's been told that he's required. So he, he sort of pushes that and he, he asks, is there, uh, that's a key difference um, because I think, I guess that's, that's where... It, at this point, Kieran believes they've broken the law to require him rather than just recommending. So the next clip I'm going to play is you'll sort of hear him push this point and he then asks Tucker, is there a difference between requiring somebody uh, attend uh, psychological counseling and recommending they attend psychological counseling? And you'll again hear Tucker just completely not sort of respond to the question and change the subject again. So um, I was just wanted to clarify and just get in contact with Dr. Densmore about the blatantly and almost comically illegal request. And um, so Canterbury sends me an email, and let's, let's note the heading. You said recommended. <laughs> he, 
he heads it. I mean, is he even Canterbury even here? I guess not. Um, he he headed it as, quote unquote, required process to attend class. That's just the heading. Required process to attend class. Do you see a fundamental difference between him saying on this email that something is required and you saying you're saying that's recommended? Is there a difference between requiring something and recommending something? Okay. Um, are there other things that you'd like to share with the committee? Yeah, I'd like to share the email because. Um, okay. So he's he's asked, is there a difference between requiring and recommending? And Tucker's response is, um, are there other things you'd like to share? Okay. So at this point, Tucker actually then just tries to end the meeting because um, Kieran's and Kieran's just sort of in this state of uh, well, I don't I don't want to assume his internal state, but he seems just very confused at this point that he's come to this meeting. No specific allegation has has kind of been presented. No evidence has been presented. And he's now being asked, oh, is there anything else you want to say? And he doesn't, nobody's really told him at this point what he's accused of. It's it's this vague thing of, oh, your interaction with Dean Densmore that I, th- I suspect was the same as this. Um, and this very, very sort of evasive um, uh, pattern of responses from Jim Tucker. So... Uh, he asks Kieran if he has anything else to say. Kieran talks for a bit. It almost seems at this point as if he's sort of stalling and he's quite surprised that the meeting could end so quickly. Another committee member at this point asks why he doesn't want to go to CAPS and he just sort of clarifies that it, it's not about whether he wants to go. He doesn't feel it's right that he should be compelled to go. Um, then somebody called Bart Nathan joins the conversation and, and they have an incredibly frustrating exchange where Nathan's asking him, why do you think we're having this meeting, Kieran. And Kieran, like maybe like three or four times starts to respond with, well, I was, I was told that, and then Nathan interrupts him each time and says, no, not what you were told. What do you think? And then Kieran's like, he's just is sort of stuck and he's trying to explain, well, what I think sort of comes from what I'm told. So I can't explain what I, and they, you know, they, they just go back and forth in this stupid sort of childish game. And, and I think Nathan thought he was being very clever, but it, like listening to it, I don't know, you can listen to it because it's really frustrating. Um, anyway, they have this interaction and then um, uh, finally Nathan gets sort of impatient and, and tells him why he thinks um, they're having the, the and he mentions sort of his behavior and he then sort of contradicts what Tucker said earlier and he suggests that the microaggression seminar is actually part of the behavior that they are taking into account in considering um, uh, his enrollment status. So I'm going to play that clip now and this one's a bit, uh, a bit longer. Uh, so this is the Bart Nathan clip. Again, it, it's a it's a it's a very loaded question. So we are having this meeting because we are discussing, as you said, whether or not you're going to stay at UVA. I understand that's the stakes. Okay. I, I, Do you know why we're discussing whether you're going to stay at UVA? Um, to some degree, I think. What what are, what are why are we discussing whether you're going to stay at UVA? Um, again, I I can't speak for what you all think. I can just say that I was told yeah. by Dean Reed um, that uh, I uh, received a concern card from Dr. Densmore. Um, I, received, I, received, I, I supposedly received a concern card that I did not receive. I've never received a concern card, and there's no evidence I've received it. Okay. Um, besides, besides so we are your, having this discussion because we are concerned about your professionalism and your professional behavior in medical school. Okay. Um, uh, what... what and it 
goes back to what Dr. Turner was talking about as far as your um, behavior at a panel meeting and other subsequent behaviors, including the behavior you're exhibiting right now. Um, what is wrong with the behavior I'm exhibiting here right now? You're extremely defensive, and you're recording all this. This is not what a medical student typically does. This is unusual behavior. Okay. Well, um, thank you for your opinion. Are you? Um, I just have to. I have to respond to that because I'm being told this is unusual behavior. I think that requiring um, requiring a medical student to undergo a psychiatric evaluation to Attend classes is also unusual behavior because we are we are requiring you to change your behavior. You can do that any way you like. Um, what exactly are you requiring that I change? Uh, this aggressive, uh, threatening behavior. Simple projection. I mean, it, you're just projecting. I mean, the only aggressive threats I think are coming from the people who. Okay. Well, I think that's from that's all that I have. Okay, well, well, well I, I, I like to respond to that because, I mean, you describe my behavior as aggressive and threatening. Um, um, I think any patient that you walked into the room with would be scared. And we are all physicians. We know what patients feel. And, and I think that's the professionalism issue that we're having right now. We are all physicians, and we know what patients feel. Uh, from from Doctor Bart Nathan. Okay. Well, how do you interpret that? Uh, well, let's. Okay, let me just wrap it up, and I'll ask. I'll ask. Sure. I'll ask for your thoughts. Okay. So, um, at uh, the meeting goes on a bit longer. Another committee member comes in, um, tells Kieran, "I haven't heard you defend yourself at all." <laughs> Kieran sort of responds, well, you, you know, you haven't specified anything that I can defend myself against. This guy uh, again says, well, you know, this, how you're behaving now is, is just a good example of, of your behavior, um, why, why it's uh, unprofessional and unacceptable. Um, he ends up saying, I, I don't want to pass words with you about this. Uh, then it ends, um, Jim... Jim Tucker says we will notify you tomorrow of our decision. They and they decide to expel him. Uh, he's later um, he's later sort of uh, given a no no trespass order. Like he he's not allowed on campus or something like that. So this is two years ago. It's finally come up in court uh, very recently, um, and a judge has ruled that the. The case regarding his First Amendment rights can go ahead. So I, I have a lot of thoughts about this. I find it fascinating on like a lot of different levels. But um, yeah, that's taken quite a while to set the table. So I guess I just want to uh, let you guys weigh in uh, and just see what you think. I know, I mean, there is a bit more context um, that we can add. It's It seems Kieran has, well, you know, uh, most likely written some things on like 4chan and stuff like that sort of um displaying uh that he you know is might not be a very nice person uh and we can get to that i think that raises questions of you know like for me like procedural justice and and what what whether that should like enter into our thoughts at all when we're deciding about the fairness of this but i mean what what do you guys think just let me hear your thoughts rachel why don't you go first Sure. Um, so 
I think that this case is a really tough one um, because it's kind of hard to take his side because I think he is being extremely obnoxious and I, I, I don't even know really like it like it, it honestly it seems like there's some like neurodivergence there like he's just not acting like a neurotypical person um in a lot of these uh and i and and it doesn't seem to me like he would be a good doctor who works with patients um maybe you know there are doctors who don't work with patients and i think he would be fine probably with that i don't know but but then there's the issue of like him i think there is like a little bit of a witch hunt against him for uh for like speaking up against what's like the you know the dogma and the um you know during that microaggressions seminar so it's really hard to like him and to stand by him but uh yeah so i have mostly mixed feelings about it um i think like they were evading the question of like why he's really being what he's being accused of because it's really hard to describe like you i don't think you can just say like and and i don't, I don't think it's justified to say you're just weird like you're just like you know like you don't you're not you don't fit in and you don't uh you're like rude and or whatever like i don't think that that's like the the, like they can't really say that professionally probably and so i don't know manny what do you think um yeah so my my primary thing is i feel pretty comfortable suspending judgment about this situation like i don't know i'm not there i'm not like in the room with in conversations with this guy i didn't hear what he said like at the end of the day all i have is a handful of recordings where everybody's being really careful about what they're saying and like and like not necessarily saying maybe exactly what they mean or would 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 have said had there not been a camp uh, uh recording device in the room um i'm not sure i agree that i so i suspend judgment about whether he's neurodivergent or neurotypical although i'm not sure that we could say that like neurodivergent people wouldn't make good doctors i mean they, they potentially could and i'm not sure i don't want to blame him being a jerk on him having some kind of neural atypicality it might be it might not be um, it does seem clear to me that he's kind of a being an asshole, uh, on this, in, in this interaction. And what that says to me, just like, you know, again, I wasn't there, so I don't know, but, uh, what it seems to indicate to me is that he was probably being a dick to people for a while. He's a second or third year, second year, second year grad, uh, sorry, med student. Um, and he was probably kind of being an asshole to people around, and that all just precipitated and added up to you're not like, abiding by the professional standards we have at this institution um, because we're training doctors. <laughs> like we're not, if he was an undergrad, it's like, so, so anyway, I think that's where they're coming from. Um, even suspending judgment, I would say, uh, I don't think UVA handled aspects of this very well i mean he i don't think he should have been like taken aside necessarily because of what we heard on the uh at the panel 
I think something that's an interesting point is that was it a mandatory panel or did he walk into a room of people who were trying to go have a talk that they were all interested in and he voluntarily was there and then he like went after the speaker in a kind of somewhat combative way. Um, I think that matters. If it was a mandatory thing, I think it's totally like legit that you like push back on something maybe you don't agree with. If you just show up just so you can argue with the person, I think if you want to argue your point, you can just like talk to them after the talk. I, I do that all the time. If I don't agree with the speaker, I don't like harangue them for three minutes or five minutes at the end of their talk when they only have like 10 minutes to get questions. I'm just like, okay, I'm, I want to have a more debatable conversation, a more like, uh, I want to like really dig down on their points. And if I'm going to do that and really challenge them, I'm going to have a one-on-one conversation with them. I'm not trying to like m- embarrass them in front of the rest of the room. I would push back on that a little bit. I I think like it doesn't really make much of a difference to me whether it was mandatory or, or voluntary. I think it was a talk at a university. They opened it up for questions and he, he asked a question I well, he asked like a question, then like follow up, then follow up, then follow up, then follow yeah, up, and didn't but then, accept the responses he was given. Well, he right? not, well, it's not like he didn't accept them; he didn't agree with them, and and then he sort of pushed back on them. Um, and I mean, nobody, as as far as I know, nobody said you can only ask one question; you can't ask follow ups. I know you're, you're sort of saying there's these unwritten unwritten rules yeah. in, in these in these situations, but I mean, yes and no, like different. And I don't know. It's like, so to me, the, at the microaggression panel, yeah, like he was pretty combative um, and disagreeable. But I, I just I just don't think it was uh, worthy of a professionalism concern card or discipline of any kind. And yeah. the, the fact that this assistant professor wrote a professionalism concern card, he two people wanted to meet with him after this um, to sort of, I don't know, like if we believe his point, it's like the Peterson meeting was like to sort of suss him out. Like, is this, is this an evil person that we have to get rid of? And the Densmore meeting, I don't know. Like they refused to say what the hell, everybody refuses to say what the hell happened in that. Again, we don't, we weren't there. We don't know. Um, But just the fact, I mean, to me, I, I think about it almost like, you know how we like, if the police make some mistake, and then they obtain evidence, but they broke a rule earlier that subsequent evidence is inadmissible. I, I almost think that, like, well, even if he was uh, ups, uh, like angry or hostile in this meeting with Densmore or, or Peterson or even this committee meeting when he was quite hostile, like, well, at this point, he kind of, like, has a case... He kind of has reason to be angry and hostile, right? Because from his point of view... He has been told you must attend psychological counseling before coming back to class just simply based on like asking this question at this um, at this panel. Uh, and I know the university is is now saying, well, it, it wasn't about the panel. It was about his unexplained absences. To me, that doesn't quite make sense either. Like I've had students be absent from class. I've never mandated that they are required to attend psychological counseling before returning to class right like that that does sound a little bit weird right yeah um so yeah i just think like the it like there never should have been a professionalism concern card like yeah he he was a bit of a dick uh he was a bit of a dick to the panelist but then again like i don't know like his 
And I, I don't think he was very eloquent, like in, in the concerns that he was raising about microaggressions and stuff like that. But like, I don't know, a lot of people do have disagreements with this. And, and the stuff that he was raising about, well, how do you how do you ever really prove that a microaggression has taken place? Like is like somewhat of a valid question that, you know, people people are debating in, in the academic literature. Right. So um, I think it's yeah, like it's a university. We I mean, in theory, this is like the the marketplace of ideas, you know, and we'll, we'll get to that, <laughs> we'll in, get to that. In, in your topic, right? Like in theory, this is a marketplace of ideas. You should be able to challenge things. You should be able to disagree. Maybe he took up a little bit too much time, but God, like I think people so, do that all the time. They don't get kicked out of... They don't no, get, yeah. yeah. And that's why it, it strains credulity for me to think that that's why he's getting kicked out. Like, I don't think that that's why he's getting kicked out. I think I could have done basically the same thing and then maybe somebody sends me the card and then I sit down with the, you know, one of my colleagues, my older colleagues, and they say, hey, the way you approach that, like, they could have told me what I just said to you, right? That, like, you can, if you have an elaborate set of questions and you really feel like you're going to criticize the, the core of a talk that you just attended, that's probably a thing you should do with the t- speaker afterward because it's, it's, it's a lot more in-depth and other people want to talk and it comes off as combative, doesn't sound professional, all of that stuff. Go ahead, Rachel. Yeah, well, first I just need to um, go back to... I don't want to be canceled, so I just want to say that I do not intend to imply that neurodivergent people can't be doctors. <laughs> um, just that um, sort of, you know, you might be able to explain some of his behaviors by, like, viewing him as, like, not um, a neurotypical person. I don't know if I'm just... Digging myself deeper here. I'm just gonna. <laughs> yeah, like, I wasn't trying to say that you were saying that. I was just clarifying. Like, I don't think that's the case necessarily. Manny, I want to read you something because it does seem that his behavior in the microaggression seminar is part of the reasoning for his suspension. So this is actually from the University of Virginia's lawyers themselves, and they said the suspension letter stated the plaintiffs quote. Aggressive and inappropriate interactions in multiple situations, including in public settings, comma, during a speaker's lecture, comma, with your dean, comma, and during the committee meeting yesterday, comma, constitute a violation of the school's School of Medicine's technical standards. So it is forming a part of the package of inappropriate behavior. Um, and given that they during the ASAC meeting, they didn't mention like any other specific thing other than the one guy who was like well you recording this is highly unusual and you being so defensive but i just like i hear that and i go well wh- of course of course he's being defensive like you're trying to kick him out of he's there to defend himself i think he was doing it like you know he was trying to be a little bit to johnny hotshot lawyer like uh do you have proof of this do you have proof of that but like i mean one point he made the distinction between recommended and required does seem like a very important legal distinction uh and i think he was kind of right to bring that up and i think he was yeah like the part about did you get the email was just stupid but i think he was trying to do his best on three hours notice um because I think at that point, like, you know, mo- most students would just go in and sort of apologize and, and grovel and stuff like that. I, like, I don't know. And I think that's what they were expecting. Um, and yeah. And I'm not sure what we mean by grovel. But for me, it's just a demonstration of 
professionalism. Like you might be in a situation where you say the wrong thing to a patient, not because you're trying to do anything, but because you just like offended somebody. And the best thing to do in those circumstances from a professionalism standpoint, the thing that you're attending is going to like, the thing that you're the head of the Dean of medicine at your hospital is going to like, is that you were like, you're totally right. Patient. I appreciate that you have these concerns. I will think about my behavior in the future. This is the way responsible, mature, professional individuals carry themselves and deal with people and the the every, every step along the way he could have just switched flipped the switch to being like okay maybe maybe like there could have been a better way i could have handled those questions or whatever maybe there's a better way i could handle this meeting that i'm having with you my dean um and like could have made all of this not have been a problem i think he precip like it might be that 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 the the talk was a precipitating event but it is his behavior from that talk to through to today to today that got him out of medical school like this easily could have been swept under the rug and forgotten um yeah and I, it seems to me at least yeah i think like so what paul said about like how you know if the police get evidence uh in illegal ways they have to throw it out i think like i don't i'm trying to think if that applies in this case like because i mean first of all i think that that rule i don't know it has its reasons but like if if ultimately like you found something and it was there like yeah you shouldn't the rules there so that people like so that the police uh, obey the laws well yeah so they don't abuse the abuse the laws to right. yeah. but like ultimately in this case uh yeah the, i i don't think that they should have gotten any sort of pushback after the um seminar but his behavior since then really was like extremely unprofessional. And even if it is in a, like, yeah, he did need to defend himself. Right. Like, and, and I, I can, I can totally see that as like a reasonable explanation for his behavior for sure. But then there's like this idea of like, okay, he's a med student and he's going to be a doctor. And like, he has a responsibility that to like, be, you know, go above and beyond what we would expect from like a typical person who's upset, right? Like we, we expect doctors to be like authority figures who are like, you know, smart and composed and we can trust them and not to like throw a tantrum. And that's, Hmm. I mean, kind of what he was doing. Yeah. I just think like that, really opens up the door to vast possibilities of abuse of power, right? So, like, if I can, for example, like, say, you know, I, I disagree with you about something, right? Like, you or you express, express a view in a seminar that I don't like, and I'm like, well, Rachel's the kind of person that I, I, I want to kick out of medical school. And so I'm like, you know, I'm, there's a professionalism report card about you. Now I'm demanding that you go to psychiatric counseling. You then tell me, well, that's against the law. So now I'm going to set up this meeting to decide if like, we, I'm going to kick you out of the school. And then at the meeting, you ask me, well, what, what is this about? And I evade every question and refuse to like, give you specific examples. Finally, you get upset. And you're like, well, this is crazy. This is a kangaroo court. And I'm like, ah, oh, so, so unprofessional, Rachel. Like, you just like, and it's in their charter. Like, it's actually in their guidelines of professionalism that you have to modulate 
your emotions uh, in stressful situations, right? So, like, you can just, like, do all this stuff, like, abuse your power in all these ways. The minute somebody gets, like, upset, you've got, ah, gotcha, gotcha. That's a, that, that was unprofessional. Um, you're out of here. Like, it just, there's got to, I just think there's got to be, he's got to be a bit more protected than that because the whole thing, the whole thing, like you're admitting, stemmed from, he shouldn't have been, he shouldn't have been in those meetings. He shouldn't have been given this report card. He shouldn't have been getting these emails. He definitely, it seems to me, shouldn't have been, well, mandated uh, that he attend psychiatric counseling, which is just weird, sort of like, almost like Soviet, Soviet style <laughs> tactics. Like we, we, you, you disagreed at the microaggression seminar. We, we suspect you're insane, Kieran. No, and like, I, I don't I, think I, that's an like, accurate portrayal of what happened, though. <laughs> Maybe, but it, it it don't you think it's weird that it it went it wasn't discussed at the meeting like it wasn't in the meeting notes it was just tacked onto the end of that email I recommend you go to counselling eleven days later it had become a requirement like arguably an, an illegal requirement that's pretty weird if it was indeed a illegal requirement then yeah I mean UVA should be punished for doing that yeah I mean yeah I, I'm waiting for the case to I think that's be that's going to be litigated. The, that's going to be the crux of the case, I believe. And, and I think like a couple of those people screwed up in that meeting because they did bring it back to the microaggression seminar and like on multiple occasions and like even in their motion to dismiss. Um, but I guess I think they'll probably make the argument that the, the mandatory psych counseling was about the unexplained absences, not the... But like I said, like I that just doesn't make... That's not a school policy, like... If somebody has unexplained absences and they tell me they're coming back to class, I'm like, great. I'm not like... I think what makes most sense to me is that uh, he was displaying um, emotional instability in these meetings. And they were like, shit, this guy probably could use like a conversation with a counselor. Like, it doesn't... I don't think it was a Soviet like attempt to like call him insane or something. I think I think it was a legitimate no, well, concern that like he, you know, yeah. was cleared to seem to be emotionally having trouble dealing with the circumstances and well yeah. i'm looking back at the uh email from asac where it says um it's always important in medicine to show mutual respect to all blah blah blah. we would suggest that you consider getting counseling in order in order to work on your skills of being able to express yourself appropriately and so if and i think like and then i'm, I'm wondering like what if instead of saying counseling there, they had some sort of like class where they teach bedside manner or something relevant to medicine. And they were like, you're going to need to take this class uh, because like clearly, you know, there's issues with like this, you're deficient in this uh, aspect of it. These ability, the ability to, to navigate difficult conversations without losing your cool. And which is something you have to do as a doctor. But that sentence is fascinating because that sentence does link the recommendation of counseling to how you express yourself. And that that did come right after that meeting where all they discussed was the professionalism concern card that came from the microaggression seminar. So I think UVA might end up paying him <laughs> some some uh, serious coin here. And I, I don't know, though. Like, let, let's see how it pans out. But like that does suggest to me because then it, you know that i don't know it's just weird to say okay we recommend you get counseling 
about like to learn how to express yourself better based on this meeting where we discussed your uh, behavior at this microaggressions thing 11 days later it's become a requirement and now they're trying to argue oh well that wasn't about his behavior in the microaggressions thing which is like being ruled protected speech so i don't know i don't know like i i feel like uva might have a problem here yeah no. yeah i i think they very well could have a problem like legally that they mishandled this and i think like that's something you're gonna find like individuals will mishandle situations and could potentially you know create legal liabilities for the institutions that they work for and they didn't mm. intend to or whatever and that very well could have happened in this yeah. circumstance we should also mention like the 4chan stuff because like obviously like it doesn't be- it doesn't have any bearing on the legality of the case because you know i could log into 4chan now and say i'm rachel Ernstoff and you know, like sure, but he. he I, I hate he, this group of people. He I like, posted a picture that only he could have taken, unless it, it was had, the picture of well, been been in the the room, unless, and it hasn't been posted anywhere else. Unless it had been shared elsewhere, which we don't sure. know. I don't think so. We don't know. And, for the, sure, and then, there's, I mean, there's other posts that have been shared where there was no, there was no stuff like that. Like that one. There's one post, and I do think it was probably him. Like, don't get me wrong. Like, because this was two years ago. This wasn't a news story two years ago. Like, I do think it was probably him. And there's one post where he's like, "I'm going to become head of UVA Medical School and fire all these people if that's if that's what I have to do." I no. And didn't he say? He said another one. It was like, "I'm going to obliterate the concept of microaggressions from from the world just just out of spite or something like that." And I do think that was probably him. And it, it shows that yeah, he's this kind of like. Ah, sort of like bright, Breitbart reading, 4chan posting, just angry, angry dude. And like, and that's the energy, that's the energy that he brought to that microaggression seminar. And that it seems that he's brought like through every interaction since then. And, and these people just, seems like they just didn't know how to deal with it. Like, I think so, like a lot of those people in that ASAC meeting just said things that were just stupid. Like they just didn't know didn't know how to res- respond or they didn't know like how to, how to deal with this kid. And I, and I, but they also sort of knew they had all the power. So like, they didn't have to answer his questions when he's asking them, well, what was it about my interaction? What did I do in my interaction? It's just like, well, I don't have to answer. I'm just going to change the subject. Anyway, it's a f- super fascinating case, especially like, especially for people who do, you know, want to share heterodox opinions and like challenge these like what are fast becoming sort of like accepted dogmas and in academia and stuff like that and and just like i mean i do like like you guys have said like i do think it's definitely true that you know it he he could still be at uva had he been a little bit more like savvy uh, politically right like so this doesn't really prove that you can't uh you can't challenge these ideas you'll be kicked out of school if you challenge the idea of microaggressions it doesn't prove that at all um but i don't know the mere fact that of the professionalism complaint the mere fact of having to go or just being invited even to these two meetings that then then led to more and more problems just based on his his uh his questions at the microaggression seminar is slightly concerning like it is it does sort of suggest that yeah like um people are not reacting uh 
to these ideas being challenged uh, in in a in a totally appropriate way. People are overreacting a little bit, I would say, and this is like way back in 2018. Um, I, I I would think it would probably be worse now. Okay, so I think so. I just wanted to like kick around uh, a few hypotheticals just to like see how we feel about them. So, like in this case, I think it really is the the crux of the issue is sort of the inability to separate um, what he said from how he said it. And so, like, what do you think? So, first of all, there's this issue of the professionalism standard existing. I, for one, think that that's fine. Like, I think that um, it, it, it sort of polices, like, the way you can behave um, and the way you can talk and, like, things like your tone of voice, even, it seems like. But I think that in this context of, like, training people to become doctors, um, that's acceptable. Totally. I wouldn't want to apply that standard across the United States. You know, that's a very unreasonable standard. Or even like if you're training people to become like garbage men, like, no, you don't, you don't need a standard like this where you can't, you have, you have to like hold your tongue and be really respectful in every circumstance. But I think like there are certain industries, there are certain jobs, professional jobs. And yeah, I think that's well put. And so, yeah. And so if, if we're okay with that, um, then let's just take a scenario where, he's not talking about microaggressions where he's just arguing about, you know, anything else. Uh, it could be like, I don't know, whatever people argue about. Right. Um, and, 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 but just in a way, like maybe he's in a class and a professor says something and like he, he thinks something else or whatever, and he questions it. But in this sort of like combative, uh, incessant sort of like tone and, um, like, what do you think in that case? Uh, would it be acceptable to, like, file a professionalism card against him? I'll answer first. Just, like, it, I would have had the same critique of, like, let's say he was my student. I'm his, like, advisor or attending or whatever. I would have still pulled him aside and said, hey, next time we have a speaker, let's try this different route and talk to them afterward and if ask the question if they don't answer it to your satisfaction just say i don't know i still don't i still have questions about that but maybe i'll talk to you afterwards like there's a way to navigate the situation where you don't come off as an asshole let's do that next time even though it's not political right it's just about like how to carry yourself in well these professional yeah settings. i mean and you said that you that's how you would uh you would have done it with the microaggression thing too but like what if you know someone else who does think that it's like worthy of filing an official complaint just because he was just being so violating social norms in such a egregious way um would it have been a cause for concern in that case i yeah like i quick anecdote like what what the um maybe my first or second year at berkeley um Milo Yiannopoulos was going to come give a talk and the students rioted. Um, and uh, that gave Milo all sorts of exposure. Like he was on, instead of talking to 60 Berkeley Republicans, he was on CNN talking to millions and millions of, of people. And I, I just thought it was it was stupid and counterproductive. And um, we had this meeting, uh, our, our department had this meeting and um, 
I got into it with a professor. Uh, I got it like, cause he, he was kind of saying, yeah, like we, we, we have to deplatform these people. And I just thought it was stupid. Still kind of think it was stupid and counterproductive. And I, I was like arguing him with him in a very kind of hostile tone. And I, and I, rem- I remember like asking him a question and, and he was like, well, look, I, I'm just sensing a lot of hostility here. And I'm like, well, I, you know, like, okay, you're, interpreting my body language and my tone right and he was like right and i was like well don't do that just answer the question <laughs> and he, he was like he just like put his hands up and sort of like walked away um and he i guess if we were at uva he could have filed a professionalism concern card against me um look i yeah i just think it's a lot it's a lot to ask of people ne- never to li- i don't know like i I came like I did philosophy in undergrad and you would it's just arguing that's all it is and like some people do it in a in a calm way and some people are kind of jerks about it and and interrupt and push back and stuff like that and I ah, I don't know I don't know like maybe he would make a bad doctor I think another thing that makes a good doctor is caring about evidence uh, and, and and proof and stuff like that and like through it all he's kind of shown that like he cares a lot about evidence I would I would let him be my doctor for sure I think there's probably a lot of like a lot of people who hear this stuff who who, who would not uh, though I think the guy what the guy said about like you you would just walk into a room and patients would be scared I don't know if you heard that in one of the recordings like that 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 was a bit absurd and and Kieran makes the point that like he's never had a complaint like from a patient um and and you know none of the complaints against him were about sort of behavior with patients they were kind of behavior in this context that he feels like he's being sort of unfairly treated and he wants to sort of assert his rights um and he may he may have a case he may be right that his rights were um his rights were infringed upon um we'll have to let the courts decide i don't know i can't help like i i'm kind of rooting for the guy like i know he's He's not a very sympathetic character, but I've all these people in the committee, I got so annoyed listening to that meeting, how they just wouldn't wouldn't respond to his questions and just knew that they had all the power. Um, and that, that oh, the guy at the end who was like, I haven't heard you defend yourself at all. It's like, what? Oh, and yet he was being so just, defensive. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, yeah. They were just so fucking smug. And I don't know, I'd love him to, I'd love him to like get the decision and just teach them to like be a bit more, um, a bit more conscientious that people do have free speech rights. Uh, and like, I you know, like, would, I'd be happy for the, this to turn out however it turns out. Like if he wins, if he doesn't win, whatever. Uh, and I think UEA should readdress their processes and make sure that they are not, uh, they're not set up in such a way that they could abuse power. Um, what I was going to say though, is I kind of had an opposite reaction. Um, especially if you look at that picture, he took like a picture of all the people sitting around the table. And when I look at that picture, I see a dozen people who are professional doctors who have done this for probably 10 plus years, each of them potentially. And, and I just can't help but be like, I'm really going to take the side of this, Third, the second year grad or uh, medical student that he is representing the circumstance better than these dozen professionals who have been doing this for decades potentially 
and that just to me it it, it like uh it just strains credulity for me to think like oh he has a better handle on this situation and and how he sounds in these circumstances than all those people who are looking at the situation and like thinking and and are just like medical professionals like it just it strikes me as like that that seems implausible um but you know we'll see what the courts decide yeah um i had two things to say one is that i'm kind of like I think that maybe we didn't talk about this enough, but there is this distinction between uh, how he's behaving in like a lecture hall as opposed to with a patient, which Paul, you brought up a little bit. And like, I think that their professionalism cards should, I don't know the whole system there, but it should make a distinction because like, you know, as social psychologists, we all know about how the situation can affect the way people behave and like, if you're in an academic situation and you're getting like argumentative um, just because you're like passionate about evidence and stuff, that doesn't necessarily imply anything about how you'll behave with patients. So I guess now I'm leaning uh, towards the other side. Um, and I definitely, as, as, as to whose side I'm on, um, yeah, I think that I I do side with him, not because I think that he's right but because i think that they're wrong i think both sides are wrong um but they have more power and more responsibility to not uh be able to you know kick students out uh willy-nilly for what they however they uh present yeah yeah i guess i should yeah i don't like i want to like revise my i'm rooting for him comment i think like there's a lot that we don't know um and you know like so i'm with you manny like it, it'll turn out how it turns out i think it's it's very interesting and and there are some instances in it where it's clear to me that uva sort of like overreacted and and 100 yeah did, like were themselves sort of escalating it in a in a kind of hostile manner anyway we should move on um we've spent a bunch of time on this i'm glad we did though i think it's i think it's good content this these riveting little culture war uh blow-ups this is an interesting one because it's like a cancellation without the public outrage machine right like it's like a all internal processes um cancellation where you just sort of pissed off some people that have power to decide your future um well he did try to make it a, a broader thing like he like you said he was posting on 4chan he was posting on reddit he uh he, uh, you know, it got picked up by all the usual suspects, which I listed last time I was on your uh, podcast and talking about the billionaire funded uh, machinery that that produces these stories and brings them to the forefront. So Breitbart, Fire and uh, New York Post, Daily Wire, like all of those places are talking about this story. Um, so, yeah. yeah. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, like you write a story about something like this. Who's going to who's going to publish it? Like it's going to end up in. But I, interestingly, like Fire has been defending other students who I think you'd be a lot more sympathetic to, Manny, uh, with regard to professionalism standards. Like, did you see the young girl that was kicked out of, I think, a dentistry school or something like that because she posted, like, racy photos on Instagram? Uh, was she, is she the one who... It was just racy photos? I thought... I remember hearing about somebody who had, like, a OnlyFans and got kicked out. I thought that was a nurse, though. <laughs> 
Okay, so I looked this up later. Uh, it was the case I was referring to is a woman called Kimberly D.A., who was a doctoral student at the University of Tennessee uh, College of Pharmacy, and she was expelled for Instagram and Twitter posts that were deemed vulgar. She was showing cleavage in these photos and quoting rap lyrics, and um, she was expelled based on professionalism standards. Uh, and Fire apparently is defending her as well. Yeah, Fire is was one of the better ones, I think, than obviously than Breitbart or Daily Wire. Um, I mean, the, the other thing I wanted to do is like contextualize this story within a broader conception of like of uh, of what's going on on college campuses and free speech, right? Because there's been plenty of instances of leftists, um, like people who are trying to organize on campus, getting suspended because they are organizing on campus under a leftist banner. Um, so the most kind of prominent story that I know about is taking place on Santa, uh, I think it's, yeah, Santa Cruz, Santa Cruz, uh, 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 school. So they fired, or I'm sorry, they, uh, suspended, fired, sorry, uh, 74 graduate students for participating in a strike to, that they were trying to like bring in more funding because these grad students are living in expensive area of Santa Cruz and they're not getting paid enough in order to survive on that those wages and so they kind of came together and then they just all got fired and this is I think preceding this happened in 2020 uh, so during the pandemic Vice has an article about how they used kind of military surveillance tech to monitor the grad student strike um yeah. And, and that's just one case of it. There's uh, grad students were, uh, there was federal suppression of grad student unionization in 2019 at, uh, at MIT. Um, there is uh, students in NYU back in 2009 who were suspended for protesting uh, faculty. Um, and there's also been research that, that faculty are more likely to be terminated for liberal speech in comparison to conservative speech. There's a Vox article about that. And, uh, and yeah, so I don't, I don't know. It's it's a mixed bag, basically. I don't think people should be fired for their political opinions necessarily. I mean, it, it depends on if you're a Nazi. I think it's fine for the school to, to fire you because you're a Nazi. But barring extreme positions, um, I think like generally speaking, schools shouldn't do it. It just seems like it happens to uh, the left and the right and maybe even the left more than it happens to the right. But we hear about it happening to people on the right more because there is an echo chamber that has sprung up around uh, these types of issues on the right that amplify these stories and bring them to the forefront. I have a lot to say about that. Um, so first, uh, I think that they should not, just like my personal views, but like they shouldn't fire people who are trying to unionize or whatever. But I also don't know um, the context around that. I don't know those stories. Uh, you know, because there's no money to be made in making them public, I guess. Uh, but they, they're like, if there are laws against unionizing and people are unionizing, then it sort of is a different thing from people um, expressing a conservative viewpoint and being fired for that. Uh, so, like, those like are, are clearly like just different categories. Arguably worse. Right. Like if it's enshrined in the law that I can silence you, that's worse than a few people who kind of go rogue and like silence you. But they really don't have the power to do that. But they kind of abuse their power and they did it anyway. Like 
the first is is systemic and it's embedded in the law and the the second is like individual and and less likely to happen um i mean i think both are bad but they're just different like it's just like that's it's not about like cancel culture and things like that um the second point well i mean because like you you know that's that's sort of the context where that you brought it up in but the second point though is that if you look at the base rates um of academics most of them are on the left and so even if more even if it was like more stories of uh professors being canceled or fired on the left it would still have to be like it's still way out of proportion uh because there are so few on the right um and and i i'm not really sure what data you're speaking about because uh i like the data that i'm aware of is like that it is a lot a bigger problem on the right than on the left yeah i think rachel makes a good point so i'm reading about the santa cruz thing now so like essentially these students went on strike and refused to turn in the grades uh i guess had some demands um the school gave them an ultimatum saying well turn in the grades or we'll fire you and they did, they didn't do it so they they fired them and they've they've been reinstated but i mean yeah quite a different thing right like if i go on strike refuse to do my job i don't know like and i get fired it, i don't know it's not really <sighs> cancel culture it's it's more like like universities there can't be a universal rule that you you must accede to the demands of all strikers in every situation right like these well you don't have to fire them though i mean you don't have to cede to all their demands and the the two choices are not cede to all their demands or fire them like there could be a middle ground where you actually try to engage with them right but if people are not doing their job you you probably don't want to pay them for a job they're not doing so that that means you're firing them i don't know i it it does feel like quite a different thing but i know there are examples of people being fired for you know saying left-wing things like anti anti-christian or anti-israel um stuff like this so yeah like it's certainly certainly the case and everybody loves to point out that barry weiss tried to get somebody fired for talking about anti-israel while she was at university and stuff like that yeah 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 so like but i think i'm pretty consistent about this and i think you know this manny that i i'm for freedom of speech for everyone right right um, right the the other really uh, like a uh, big big case that came out and luckily this is became less of a problem that now that Trump is no longer in the office but uh, his administration banned specific topics from coming into trainings and stuff like that right so you couldn't talk about white privilege or critical race theory or any of that stuff it just got there was a federal mandate that these things could not be talked about and I I just can't think of like a more Orwellian or cancel culture-ish thing than the actual federal government stepping in and saying, you can't talk about these things at college campuses. Um, Yeah. And what blows my mind too is like people who are ostensibly on the left and, you know, because there's this kind of like, you know, notion that, 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 RC, uh, that critical race theory is the is the thing that's really destroying society for people. They actually like kind of jumped on board even though they don't support Trump, even though they're like on the left, it's, it, it blows my mind that, that that actually happened. I like witnessed that. So we're now sort of uh, officially talking about your topic, Manny. So like, I know you, you've sort of, uh, you prefaced it. You want to talk about the 
broader culture around free free speech debates or something like that yeah, what, the history what, what behind we... it a little bit yeah mm, um, okay. and to some extent this is an ad for radio lab uh if you don't listen to radio lab they're great wnyc has this podcast uh really well produced and uh, you know insightful um we were talking about before they don't they don't get leave you with a uh a very resolved set of solutions to this problem, but they kind of set up the history uh, behind free speech in the United States. And so, so I guess I'm just going to quickly go through It's like a 45 minute episode, but I'm going to quickly get to kind of summarize. Um, But it's still great to listen to. So if you're uh, listening to this, I would still suggest just pop in over there. Um, So free speech as we know, it is really not all that old Uh, about a hundred years ago there just wasn't a kind of perception of free speech that you can kind of say whatever you want about the government or about um any anything the way that we can today um the federalist government in 1798 passed the alien and seditions act and that kind of facilitated a united states um where you can kind of print whatever you wanted but you could get in trouble for the content of that speech particularly if you were questioning the government and the things that it was doing, particularly if, if the government could make an argument that you might create harm through your speech. Um, so really a great example of this was during the, uh, during world war one, people were, people were questioning the draft and those people were getting put into jail because the government was worried that they wouldn't be able to enlist soldiers, enough soldiers to fight during world war one without, without, um, jailing people who are trying to obstruct the war effort in their eyes um so kind of the, the, a quote that popped out to me is like the good of the country mattered more than one person's right to say what they want and there was a similar uh, uh argument there was an argument that was being made in terms of uh vaccination right so they had just had the spanish flu in 1918 and it was very popular to say you have to force people to vaccinate sometimes against their will because if you don't we will have more of this virus spreading everywhere. Um, you infringe on the liberties of an individual so that you can have the greater good of the vaccine disseminated throughout the population and slowing down the, the spread of this, this terrible virus. Um, but there was a uh, guy named Oliver Wendell Holmes, who uh, was a Supreme Court justice, and he actually facilitated the change in how we thought about free speech in this country um, as a reaction to a specific case that he was on. And he kind of presented this uh, metaphor that became like the basis for which we understand free speech in this country, which is the metaphor of the the marketplace of ideas, right? We probably all heard that concept disbanded about left and right. Um, and he basically said that the the truth will rise to the top and it will dominate in the marketplace because it'll be better than the bad ideas that exist in the marketplace. Um, and so that has kind of taken root in the legal system and it also taken root in how we understand free speech in the United States today um, in a broader setting, not just like First Amendment free speech, which is just protecting you from the government, but also just a broader consensus about what free speech is um, in academia or in just everyday life that you can kind of just say what you want and people should be able to combat you in the marketplace of ideas and the best ideas will rise to the top. Um yeah, so one thing they do in the episode two is they talk about, so this is an empirical question, right? Do the best ideas truly rise to the top? Is that how it works? Um, and so they, there are a few different marketplaces you can uh, evaluate and you have, we have data for, right? So the one that they talked about was uh, Twitter, 
So they did MIT researchers did a study and basically found that truth. So, so what they did is they kind of like took a bunch of data from Twitter, true stories, false stories, and they tried to see which of these types of stories will emerge as more shareable as being like creating more likes, more tweets, sharing, cascading through the, the network um, of Twitter and found that truth uh, is six times uh, it takes truth approximately six times as long as falsity to reach 1,500 people. So uh, truth just moves a lot slower in the marketplace of ideas. It doesn't always come out on top if we're talking about Twitter. Um, now, of course, Twitter is a microcosm. It's, it's, it's not the actual marketplace of ideas in this like philosophical sense. The actual marketplace is society. Um, but uh, yeah, y'all, y'all's thoughts about that. My my initial reaction to all of it is that, well, two things. One is that uh, even the best marketplace, uh, most the freest marketplace needs some regulation. Uh, and, and most people agree on that, uh, even, you know, the most conservative or libertarian views um, when it comes to like economic markets. And. I think the same is true of uh, the marketplace of ideas. I think that it is a good metaphor, but we need some regulation because um, the same way that uh, monopolies can infiltrate a market and uh, sort of uh, distort things, f- fake news and, and you know other things can infiltrate the marketplace of ideas and distort uh, our, our psychology, sort of like take advantage of people's psychology and distort things and and um yeah i'll just say that for now and yeah what is what do you have to say paul i just think that um like the radio lab uh sort of like <laughs> making a mistake if they they think they're bringing a, a novel perspective to this like i just don't i think like it's not it's not a new idea that ah oh, if we allow free speech people could say bad things they could say things that are wrong like i think this is very obvious and everybody's already always known about this and and like throughout like the last 100 years when you know freedom of speech has been a cherished value in american society people have been aware aware of this um but it just reminds me of that famous quote i think it was churchill said like um democracy is the worst form of government except for all the others right like and i so i just got impatient with these like smarmy new york hipsters just like hey we're just throwing around ideas ah there's certain problems with freedom of speech like oh wow really guys right like so what and i just kept on thinking okay so what's the alternative what's the alternative and then you get to the end of the podcast and they're like okay so what's the alternative and they're like well oh well we don't really know we're just having a conversation here we just and i just think it's like to me it's a little bit irritating because it's like these people who are just sort of like you have these um ostensibly liberal people who are now sort of cheering on these giant tech companies like implementing censorship uh because it's like they're censoring people that they hate right and just like kind of like abandoning these hundred year old sort of like society-wide 
consensus that that freedom of speech is an important value that needs to be protected because like in the short term it seems to be operating in their favor yeah like we loved it when trump got kicked off twitter yeah like we loved it when you know facebook you know it does all this like and like you know like like twitter twitter has all makes all these weird decisions about who gets kicked off twitter and stuff like that And, and it's often you know it's often people with heterodox sort of viewpoints um so I don't know, like, I, I just, like, I listened to the pod and, and I I got just a bit annoyed and, and, like, after it, I was like, okay, so, like, I don't know, come come to me when you have an idea for a better, a better system, you know, like, come to me when you have an alternative to free speech and then we can talk. Um, because it's not like that Supreme Court justice wasn't already aware, like, of all these problems. And maybe you could argue that, well, well technology has added, um, has made it even more problematic, has allowed, like, more spread of misinformation and stuff like that. But I don't know. I just don't don't see an easy alternative. And I, and I just don't want, like, billionaire CEOs to control what I can and can't say and, and share. Yeah. You know? uh, yeah. And, so, sorry, go ahead. Well, I was just going to, I guess, ask the question... Do you not think there should be moderation at all? Uh, hmm. Yeah, my, well, moderation at all. Definitely, uh, like, as, so as far as I know... It's an unfair question a little bit. I mean, like, a, we will admit, we, we, I will be able to dig down on something and you'll say mm-hmm. no child pornography, mm-hmm. Right. Like we will eventually land on something where you're like, yes, there should be some degree of moderation, but I guess, yeah, this is, and this is the same thing with academic freedom, right? Like, because everybody says, like, everybody brings up Nazis, right? Like, well, we wouldn't want Nazis to speak on campus. We wouldn't want people publishing race science. And like, intuitively, I agree, you know, ultimately I think I'm a, I'm a consequentialist ultimately. So like, yeah, you just really have to convince me that, the consequences are bad enough of allowing certain speech and and i'll i guess i'll be in favor of censorship but at a certain point i don't believe in absolute rights um yeah but yeah like i also hmm yeah i i i just want to i just really want like as somebody who throws around heterodox ideas and like I really want to know what the rules are. Like, I really, like if stuff, if stuff's going to get me kicked out of university or get me cancelled or like mean that I can't get a job, I want to know exactly what that is. And I just think those lines are so blurry, and they seem to be moving. Uh, and the the window of what's acceptable seems to be changing quite fast. Um, some of the stuff happening in media is crazy. Like people are people are getting fired. Because like years ago, they said the N word out loud on a trip to Peru, not as a slur, but discussing somebody else having used it. And yeah, like, and I don't know. Um, yeah, for me, that's that's what makes that's my perspective, and it's a very self-interested perspective. Is like, you know, I just want to know, like, want to know if we do disallow some speech or, or some research topics or whatever like i want to really know clearly where that where that line is yeah and i think for me what i took away from the end of that episode was 
So there were two analogy or uh, metaphors that uh, Oliver Wendell Holmes used. It was the marketplace of ideas. But in addition to that, he also mentioned this being an experiment and thinking of free speech as an experiment. Um, and I think that, for me, is the thing. It, that's where I am with free speech. I'm willing to say, especially given like some of the stuff we've seen lately, COVID denial, I mean, climate change denial, the same thing happened with tobacco companies, there's just a lot of misinformation and that misinformation creates an abundance of harm. And so, yeah, we should be thinking about like, how can we moderate the situation? How can we implement reasonable, uh, straightforward, like you said, like they should be rules that it's very clear what the rules are and that how I can follow them. Um, and I think like, that's, I think the end result of that episode was to say, it's an experiment, keep tweaking, find ways to tweak the system as it exists. So we can try to, facilitate a better future rather than just say this is the best we can do guys we got free speech and that's that's the best we got yeah i think thinking about it as an experiment uh makes sense to me um and people are experimenting with this uh gordon pennycook uh is doing a lot of work on false information uh on online and you know they they're they found like very effective strategies to get people to share less and, you know, very small things that you can just add. Um, and I'd recommend checking out his work, but like, you know, it's possible to not even like regulate, but just to do some like nudges, like asking people, you know, have you read the article that you're about to share or like, you know, s- small things. Yeah. Like, they have implemented that. It's so yeah, cool. like things like that. It's like, uh, it sort of removes the you know authoritarian aspect of like shutting down speech, but also encourages people to actually you know think through their ideas. Uh, so I'm fine with that. But then I think when you uh, treat it as an experiment, you have to really consider like what's the timeline here? Um, because at any given time, you can say, well, like which idea has won out at this point, uh, and say, okay, well, if if any bad ideas have won out, then like free speech is bad. We have to shut it down, right? Like that, that doesn't make sense, uh, to me at least. And, and there are a lot of really good things that have, have come out of free speech, you know, like civil rights and things like that wouldn't exist. I was about to say, yes. And so, you know, like, I think that you do want to look at the consequences and you want to see like, what are the, what are the pros and cons and no system is going to be perfect. And, to me, yeah, it seems like uh, a pretty good system that we can keep tweaking as needed. But um, I agree with Paul that not knowing the rules is a problem um, for people with heterodox views. Yeah. And we don't have to dwell too much longer on this particular episode because there was the other topic of... uh, voter suppression bills that I wanted to get to a little bit. But, Paul, if you wanted to cap things off there. Yeah, no, like, I guess I don't, the nudges are interesting to me. Like, I don't, I don't really consider them to have much to do with free speech, you know, because they don't, they don't stop you sharing it. It's just like, you know, and even those things that Twitter put below Trump's tweets of like, this, this is a disputed claim. Um, although I would say I saw something 
that made me give a wry smile the other day. There was like a comedian um, with like 8 million followers or something. And she posted that like, if you are a young black man and you don't, even if you comply with the police, it's 50-50 chance that they'll murder you or something like that. And like, well, one of the comments was like, no, uh, no Twitter fact check uh, on this, I see. And I, yeah, so I don't know. Like it, I guess that, and that just sort of, goes back to what I was saying about like, you know, we give a lot of, we're going to end up giving a lot of power um, if we do. And and to be fair to them in the episode of Radiolab, they did grapple with this, um, that, you know, we also like, it doesn't seem like a great outcome for like billionaire owners of, of tech companies to be the ones deciding what, what we can share and, and what we can say. So um yeah i think but the nudge stuff is is fine like and and i think like yeah the 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 warnings under trump's tweets i mean i i don't i don't know if that made much of a difference to anybody if like if there's any trump fans out there who are like oh what oh that's disputed oh let me go let me go fact check that in the new york times and that that's that changes my opinion i didn't think he would say something dishonest yeah um yeah no i it's a tricky, it's a tricky issue uh, for sure. Um, I, yeah, I, moderation. Yeah, like definitely. There's the, for sure. There's stuff that you know you you want, like kitty porn, for example. Like, it's like, why you know wipe it off the internet? Like, get it out as there. best you can. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so yeah, no, like, yeah. I I guess I just always want to know okay well what's what are the rules what are the principles and i just often i just find that that yeah no nobody ever like takes the time to to talk about that and go into like real depth about that um it's always just here's anecdotal example to to like make you intuitively feel that we have to like censor stuff um i haven't seen any heterodox person get booted off of a social network like i don't consider i don't consider like trump's removal is not because he's heterodox it's because he's fe- he's he's spreading false information so i, I mean like andy we, andy go yeah. or no being banned from twitter for something that there's seems... a graham lion linhan uh just just take them one at a time um <laughs> uh okay so he tweeted, "Trans Twitter suspended a conservative gay journalist for hate speech Monday for stating without rancor that trans murder rates are low. Andy Go committed the hateful conduct in response to a tweet by former first daughter Chelsea Clinton that said, since 2013, more than 150 trans people have been murdered in the US, the majority black transgender women, which she called an epidemic of violence and hate. Not so fast, Mr. Go said noting that 150 deaths over several years in a nation of more than 300 million people is hardly an epidemic. He said, the U.S. is one of the safest countries for trans people. The murder rate of trans victims is actually lower than for the cis population. He also noted that liberals are being silent about an important detail. Also, who is behind the murders? Mostly black men. For that, Mr. Go got a note from Twitter about violating our rules of hateful conduct. According to a screenshot posted at the... Okay, so I'd say this is an example. Where are you reading from? This is, I'll send you the link, Washington Times. Uh, 
I'd say it's a fairly clear example of somebody just sort of stating things that are arguably like just true facts, uh, but sort of unwelcome. Um, I will have to look into it. Um, yeah. But yeah, I don't know. I, I guess, yeah, it does happen. We could, we could stay here. Yeah, for here's another. I know that how I like Here's it. another one on uh, this person said, men aren't women, though, um, in response. I mean, I read that on Twitter like every day. Hmm. Yeah, but yeah, I mean. Yeah, it's uh, like highly inconsistent. Nobody ever said it was applied consistently. Right, yeah, I think. Right. I mean, but you, you have people on the left and right who get inconsistently thrown off Twitter for ridiculous reasons. And this this comes back to your point before, which is like, yeah, we have like a billionaire class who's like just making these decisions behind closed doors and we don't know why. Yeah. Yeah, I mean in in this case in this case it's probably nineteen year old interns (laughs) (laughs) making these decisions like two hundred at a time uh, based on some loose guidelines that have been written by somebody far far below the billionaire yeah i don't think like i don't think it's an easy job and uh, we've sort of talked about this the last time i was on the pod um just like knowing how to regulate uh social media and it's it's extremely complicated and um there, there is sort of a, a need to make up the rules as you go but um hopefully we figure it out in the near future and we can go back to just like saying harmless random things on social media that no one cares about wait andy no andy no still has his twitter yeah i think he was reinstated he was suspended i see okay okay yeah yeah so a lot of those are also done to investigate like the person and so they're not meant to be like permanent bans or whatever it's like hey we've you've been flagged by like a million people and so we feel the need to like suspend just to see if you are doing something or not and I can see how, like, that's not a great system, but given that you are trying to, like, minimize harm, that can be a good a good thing is, like, if a million people flag you within 10 minutes, then you are just suspended and then we do an investigation and then we reinstate you if this is an unfair sure, flagging. maybe. The reason we got on this was because uh, you sort of questioned uh, Paul's concern about um, voicing heterodox views and, and you said, like, as far as you know, no one has been kicked off Twitter for heterodox views. And I think like a very quick, like two minute search on Google uh, showed that there are plenty of people who get kicked off. And Oh, I, I sorry. I, I, I was, I was trying to say a permanent ban, like what happened to Trump, like what happened to uh, Alex Jones, like <laughs> Trump's, those types. Trump's views that he won the election is kind of heterodox. <laughs> His, well, I don't think they're heterodox. I say it's misinformation because it is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, well, right? I mean, that, we, that, <laughs> is that I, for debate in this podcast? <laughs> I, as a scientist, I am agnostic about who won the election. <laughs> I, I wasn't there. I have, no, I mean, obviously, like it, it's, it seems very unlikely that Trump won. But like, what's an, another point? A good point that somebody made. I can't remember who was that. Like, well, uh, there are sort of dodgy elections all over the globe right like people question election results a lot right so like the the next time there's an election in sort of russia or venezuela people are going to be like you know the leaders of the parties like the next election in 
Tanzania or something like that might go on Twitter and say, hey, they, they stole the election. This was, there was election fraud. Should they all just be banned from Twitter? Or does now Twitter have the job of having investigators in every country to, to like know the ultimate truth about every election in every country in the world? Or, you know, like, it's just, again, it's like, well, what, what's the rule? Right? You, like, you, you're not allowed to question election results if the New York Times says the election was not rigged. Like, do you know what I mean? Like, it just gets... If, if there's it, not any evidence. If well, every well, time like, that their right, evidence he, is, is looked for, it's, it's found to be false. Like, that, that's the conclusion. Okay, but, like, that that's takes that's, weeks, of in, weeks of investigation, right? Which and is why like, he, so it, like, he was allowed to say that over and over and over again on Twitter before he was finally removed. A lot of people were like, that's so late. Why did you... You're barely going to throw him off? He's been doing this for four years. And I kind of agree with that sentiment. But I also agree with you on this, which is, like, you have to wait until the facts are in. And the facts were in, and they threw him off. And it, yeah, that but that sense. also sort of relies on... Uh, having this system where like you can get to the truth um and then like you can imagine other countries where uh maybe the person who's questioning the integrity of the election is the you know the person who's trying to like overthrow the government that's oppressive and then the oppressive government is not willing to like set up proper investigations or whatever like you can imagine a bunch of systems I mean, I- in which like you yeah like you just really can't get to the truth easily and then what do you do with that absolutely no so so this actually has come up in uh, a bunch of different places there have been genocidal activities that have been facilitated by social media and facebook right and so those so there are certain words for example that are illegal in certain countries because in those countries f- social media has been used to facilitate like mass murders of of like one ethnic group against another. And so they've, they've actually said like, you can't say this word, but in the United States, we can say that word because it has no cultural meaning at all to us here in the United States. And so there's no danger of this word or these sets of phrases or these things being shared and having any kind of harm. That makes total sense, right? Like you have to make these rules based on context and and the the globe is not one context it's a multitude of contexts across a broad array of different historical factors that play into how social media interacts with the environment and so of course like you might have a different standard about questioning the election in somewhere like venezuela or russia but that doesn't mean we can't establish a standard in the united states for in the united states right for our elections and our elections are fairly transparent they're not perfect but they but we do know we do have some semblance of knowledge about the truth of the matter and the truth of the matter is that the election was not stolen from 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 trump and we know this and so for him to continually say it is false information it's bad for the country finally after there was a coup attempt on the the capital they finally decided okay like why don't we kick this guy off of twitter so that he can't he can't facilitate any more you know violent action no it's a reasonable thing to do i, ju- I just think like Mm. you know like when uh, who's the ultimate arbiter of truth here right like because twitter is getting their information from where um i guess new york times stuff like that like um, these news organizations and dozens and dozens of different sources that all corroborate the same fundamental reality that the election was not stolen 
and it's yeah. not just it's not just journalistic and outlets so, like you kept saying the, the New York Times, but it's also the government itself. It's a multitude of different cases that were brought by the Trump administration and by his lawyers that all all were thrown out of court because there was no standing, there was no evidence, right? So yeah, but there's no evidence that like. <sighs> Jesus came back from the dead, and you oh, you gosh. can you can post that on Twitter. <laughs> like, you don't like. I, Are you like, intentionally like making an illogical argument, or? <laughs> no, no. I, I guess I'm say, like the. So you're you're saying okay? In this case, we had like a lot of good evidence that what Trump was saying was wrong. We had this coup attempt, and it seemed like it was like a harmful thing right like it was like leading to harm there was one cop died four people died in that coup attempt uh you know you can link that to back to incitement from trump you know like it wasn't it wasn't like a coup attempt in any real sense that they were like actually seizing control of any levers of power they were just walking in this building and and walking out and uh, they took a, a lectern great but okay so like if what i what i come back to is what's the principle because there's a situation, Manny, where a left-wing politician says something uh, that incites protests uh, that's sort of de- demonstrably false, um, like, say, okay, let's just take this comedian who's trying to say that if you don't comply, if you even if you comply with the police, there's a 50-50% chance you get shot, right? People, she's got 8 million followers, people read that. Uh, you know, and we ha- we have riots, right? Like we have riots, like there's property damage, people get injured and stuff like that, right? So are we going to apply this principle because somebody's saying something demonstrably false that's inciting harm, causing harm, is this person now getting banned from Twitter as well? Because like, I just think if you have, if there's, if there's, if there's like sensible principles that apply in one case, they should apply in all cases. Sure. I mean, I don't. I don't have a problem personally making s- distinctions b- among things, so uh, among different kinds of things, right? So we're talking about the the fundamental basis of democracy, right? In the case of Trump and what he's doing. In the other case, we're just talking about a person who incorrectly states how bad it is to be black and interacting with the police. That seems fundamentally different, and that person is also not a political figure. They're not the head of a political party in the country. I feel like we should have different standards for different people who are in different positions and occupy different places in society. Okay, so Rashida Tlaib the other day posted something similar. She was like, "It's they're just murderers. The police can't be reformed. Um, so, you know, should, should she be banned? Like, she's, I don't know. I just think it's like, it's very... I don't know. And and I said this in our part where we talked about this. Like it's in the case of Trump, like it's very easy just to intuitively say, yeah, this was the this was the right thing to do. I think what's harder is coming up with like the guiding principles and the rules that you're going to apply equally like across all um all scenarios. That's all. Yeah. Yeah, I mean and I don't think we should make the perfect the enemy of the good. To say that we don't have a rule that applies to every situation across all circumstances that we could possibly come up with isn't a reason why you shouldn't in- in- implement reasonable uh, moderation. Yeah, and the same, uh, I think the same principle applies to free speech as a whole. Like, you know, don't like the uh, perfect the enemy of the good. Um 
it's not going to be perfect, but it's good and it's what right. we've got. And well, that works in both ways, right? So per- perfect, perfectly, uh, like we shouldn't make perfect free speech the enemy of good free speech. Right. And some to some people, perfect free speech means no rules, no moderation, no nothing. Right. It has to be I can say whatever I want to say. Uh, who are those? Are there times. people like that? Like who don't even accept, like, you know, the most basic principles of like, don't yell fire in a crowded theater and things well, you, like that. That's an interesting case where you actually like that's a common misconception about free speech. You actually can yell fire in a crowded theater. <laughs> you know, the only thing that's not protected speech in the u.s what is like what they call fighting words right um, right, right inciting like violence if you you have to go up in somebody's say, face and say your mother's a whore uh, like that's that's because if it's like actual speech that is like you know can i i thought it had to be like i'm gonna be- kill you like it had to be threatening violent kind of speech oh uh, i it's thought just it, insulting? it just it just had to be insightful of violence or it had to be, have a, a, a very large likelihood that it would lead to violence. That's my right. understanding. Like we, somebody we should, standing at a lectern and saying, those should, people over there, let's all kill them. And yeah, then those people get killed. Let's actually look it up because we, we've been here for two, I think it's two, a pretty, two hours. So fight, fighting words are words which... Um, quoting the Supreme Court here, by their very utterance, inflict injury or tend to incite an immediate breach of the peace. It has been well observed that such utterances are no essential part of any exposition of ideas and are of such slight social value as a step to truth that any benefit that may be derived from them is clearly outweighed by the social interest in order and morality. So even if your mother is a whore, (laughs) (laughs) if if it's going to cause enough social ruckus still still not protected speech to say that in your face it's an interesting interesting uh exception that the supreme court made yeah so we want to move on to voter suppression stuff or have we run out of time i feel like we've kind of run out of time but I i feel like we should do part two uh and then we can get to voter suppression and we can get to slate star codex and whatever else is is that okay? I just like, you know, my wife's been taking care of the baby for hours and hours and hours now. I should, I should That's be, okay. a, be a good dad. I, I guess no, I no, could yeah, just, it's fine. I could just leave you guys to do <laughs> another hour, another hour of podcast. I'm happy with that. That would be cool. So yeah, uh, that was fun. And um, Rachel, I know we didn't get to your topic, so we'll have to have you guys on again soon uh, for part two. Sounds great. Uh, Cool. Yeah, it was nice talking to you both. All Thanks right. for having us, Paul. No worries. See ya.